My name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. Um, it's a privilege to be worshiping with you today, and it's my pleasure to open God's Word with you. And we find ourselves continuing a series that we've been in for a while now in the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel. And we're in 1 Samuel chapter 24 today. And so if you brought your Bibles, you can open them up. We'll be walking through the text verse by verse, as has been our custom. And uh, the text will also be up on, uh, on slides throughout the sermon as well. But for now, let me begin with a question, if I could. What is God having you wait for? That the something that you wish you could have right now. What is God having you wait for that you wish you could have right now? Maybe it's something that we want that we don't have. Maybe it's something that we have that we're trying to get rid of. Sometimes in our impatience, we get tired of waiting and we take things into our own hands. And we try to force God's hand. We try to take something good before it's time or before we can handle it. Our passage today reminds us that there's purpose in the waiting. That waiting isn't just about what you get at the end of the wait. It's about who we become as we wait. David, our hero, is in the wilderness. He's on the run from Saul. Saul is a madman. And we've seen that the wilderness is a place of confusion and pain. And we've been saying that we all have our little moments in the wilderness, don't we? Maybe not a cave in a desert, but a time of loneliness, the experience of divorce, painful circumstances of all kinds, doubt and sorrow. The wilderness is that place of confusion. But we've also seen that the wilderness is a place of provision, haven't we? That God has provided for David in so many different ways and been with him every step of the way. The wilderness is a place of confusion, a place of provision. Today what we see is that it is a place of formation. The wilderness is a place of formation, a place of testing that in the years that David is in the wilderness, he learns crucial lessons about life, faith, in God. Along the way, character is forged in him, the kind of character that he'll need to become a king after God's own heart. My plan for today was to preach Three chapters of Scripture, chapters 24, 25, and 26, because they really go together, but I couldn't do it. I tried. I had to scrap it last night and kind of start all over again. But there are three texts. I'm going to pray for that siren really quick. 
Lord Jesus, whatever is happening, I pray that you would be with that situation. In Christ's name, amen. So chapters 24, 25, and 26, David is tested three times. It was really one whole story, but I couldn't do it. So we're going to take three weeks instead of the one. Three tests. In Scripture, people who, are, who ultimately represent God are always tested. And the tests are always the same. Will the hero trust God's word and God's timing and God's will, or will they do what's right in their own eyes? And this goes way back to the very beginning of the Scriptures. Adam was tested, right, with the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In Israel, as a nation, was tested in the wilderness, very similarly to how David will be tested in these three chapters. And for Bible nerds out there, here's a Bible nerd point. This will win you applause and acclaim at Bible nerd parties. One third of the Bible's uses of the words good and evil happen in these three chapters of the scriptures. Good and evil is testing language in the Bible. It's good and evil language. So it's like we're supposed to see that David is like the new Adam and he's standing before his proverbial tree of knowledge of good and evil being tested in the wilderness. And will he trust in God, in his timing, in his will, or will he do what's right In his own eyes. Oh, we're going to have to wait to see what happens. Three points this morning. The test, the aftermath, and what we learn from it. The test, the aftermath, and what we learn from it. But before we begin, let me pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we open your book and your story, would you... Again, guide us in our own wilderness wanderings to see that you are the God who is with us, who is providing for us, and who is shaping us. We give you praise and thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's jump in. 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. Here we go. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Merry Christmas. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And so here we're dropped right into the middle of all the action. If you'll remember, Saul the Mad King has been chasing after David. And last week it ended with a miraculous turn of events. Saul was just about to get David when the Philistines providentially attack Israel, and Saul is called away. Well, Saul's dealt with that problem, and now he's back to chasing David in the wilderness. And we're told that David is hiding out in En Gedi. 
And En Gedi is a Hebrew word that means fountain of the wild goats. So David is hiding in the fountain of the wild goats. And in that area of Israel, there are apparently the wild goats rocks, which was a series of caves. And in front of these caves are sheep folds or sheep pens. Apparently, shepherds appreciated the convenient access to the shelter of a cave should bad weather roll in during the night. And so these were well-known caves, so well-known that Saul thought, this is a good place to do my business. And so Saul goes into one of the caves to relieve himself. The Hebrew there is literally to cover his feet. And so this was a number two, not a number one. <laughs> Where's Isaac to Williger? It's the one sermon where we're talking about bathroom humor and he's not here. I know, he's going to be so sad that he was sick today. Anyway, Merry Christmas. So Saul would have gone into this cave, but he didn't know that David was there as well. Verse 3. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here, so said to David, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And so Saul comes into the cave where David and his men are hiding. Now, these caves were large, football-sized field caves, not the little caves that we may think of in our minds. So there could have been a group of men hiding in the back. Their eyes have adjusted for the darkness. Saul has just come in to do his business. He doesn't know that they're there. And what do David's men think when they see their enemy on the doorstep in such a vulnerable and compromised position? They say, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. How could this not be from the Lord, David? Enemy, right here. Let's take him out. They even say, this is what God promised he would do when he said he would give your enemy. Here's the thing. God never said that. There's no promise in the book of 1 Samuel that God will give Saul into David's hand. David is promised the kingdom, not promised Saul. He's not promised how he'll get there. And that's important to realize. And so David's men are saying, take him out. And that's understandable. Saul has caused so many problems for this group. And as understandable as their reaction may be, we need to know that, that they were in the wrong. And we need to sense what is at stake in this moment for David. So Saul was a terrible king. Saul had made their life miserable, but he was God's king. And more than that, he was God's anointed. God had set Saul apart for himself, had chosen him, anointed him. Saul was holy 
set apart for the Lord. Outside of the Ark of the Covenant, nothing in Israel was more sacred than the Lord's. All that to say, Saul was the Lord's to deal with. He had brought him up. He will take him down. And so here is the test. David had been promised the kingdom. Yes. But would he have the faith to wait on the Lord's timing? Even if that meant being moved to the margins yet again. Even if that meant more years of pain and running. Even if that meant more suffering, more nights in the caves of En Gedi. To put more of a point on it, would David wait on the Lord or would he become Saul 2.0? Now, why do I say that? Well, if you remember early on in Saul's career, before the mass murder, before the jealous rage, what was Saul's first recorded failure? He was asked to wait on the Lord to make a sacrifice for seven days. And instead of waiting, he took matters into his own hands. He couldn't wait. He took the shortcut. And taking the shortcut ends up being Saul's calling card. Ultimate being a law unto himself taking what's not his, grasping at it when it's not time, in his pride, grasping rather than waiting. Where are we grasping rather than waiting? And so now David has this choice before him. Will he take the kingdom with a slice of the knife in the dark of the cave In a pool of blood, it would have been so easy. He's right there. Or will he wait on the Lord? Even if it means more suffering. Even if it means more time in the wilderness. Will he allow the Lord to create character in his life? Character that he'll need to be the king he's called to be? Will he learn mercy and restraint? Because Lord knows Israel needs a king who knows mercy and restraint. Or will he become Saul 2.0? Those are the stakes. So what happens? (laughs) Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing that he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. Remember that. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his own way. So it's unclear what David's intent was when he first got up and snuck over to Saul. Um, But he says, I was tempted to put out my hand against him. So it seems to me that initially David was all in. 
with his men. He got up with the plan to kill and take care of Saul, but something convicted him on the way and he changed his plan. And instead of killing Saul, he creeps over to Saul's robe. Apparently, he had taken it off to do his business. And he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And then he heads back to his men. Now, what's the deal with the robe? Well, the robe represents the office. It represents being king and the kingdom. And so David cuts off the corner of the robe, symbolically taking the kingdom away from Saul. He doesn't kill him, but he engages in this symbolic move that effectively says, I'm taking the kingdom from you. I have the power to take it. And so I will. It's exactly the kind of prideful attitude that ruined Saul, and David is being tempted with that here. But in the end, even that symbolic act goes too far, and David catches himself. It says his conscience catches up to him, because he understands that God's anointed isn't to be dishonored, and the kingdom isn't something to be grasped or taken. It is a gift that is given. Rather, what he's being called to do is to extend mercy and to live by faith. He's saying, I am willing to live on the margins until God gives me the gift of the kingdom. I'm going to trust that God will vindicate me in the end. And along the way, he will forge in me the character required for me to be king. Initially, he passes. And we'll see that it did forge character in him. Almost immediately, we see a change in David. And that's where we move to now from the test to the aftermath. Just look at how David reacts. So the first thing that David does is he goes back to his men and he says, you're not going to kill him either. He protects Saul. He is Saul's savior twice over from both himself and from the rage and intention of his men. And then what follows is even more astonishing. Because David not only saves Saul's physical life, but he tries to restart his hardened heart. Check this out. Continuing on. Afterward, David also arose and went out of the cave. And he called after Saul, My lord, the king! And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth. And paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hands in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not put out my hand against my Lord. For he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. 
For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. So here's the thing. David could have remained in the cave. And that would have been the smart move, right? Why come out and expose yourself to your enemy? Sure, Saul might have eventually found out that he was missing a part of his robe, but he would have never known that David had taken it. He goes out of the cave and confronts Saul. He's risking his own life to say these words to Saul. Why? He's trying to restart Saul's heart. He's trying to reason with him. Try to get through to him. He still thinks there's hope for Saul. Just think about how he speaks to him. He shows respect. He calls him by his royal title. He bows in a posture of submission and humility. He calls him father. He was his father-in-law after all. He even sweetens the whole deal by saying, Saul, you're not a madman. It was other people who were telling you I was trying to harm you. That wasn't true. <laughs> Saul was crazy. But, but David is just doing whatever he can to catch Saul's ear. He wants him to hear. And what he wants him to hear is, Saul, I could have killed you, but I showed you mercy. I showed you mercy. And he goes on in verse 12 to say, May the Lord judge between you and me. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. Here then is the secret that partly explains David's waiting. He had confidence in the Lord's justice. In what, in what God would do for him. That God would ultimately vindicate him. David is not going to take vigilante action himself. He goes on. He says, as the Proverbs of the ancients say, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand will not be against you. David is just saying there, judge a tree by its fruits. I'm not wicked, Saul. Then verse 14, after whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? What David is saying is, I'm harmless. I'm nothing. What are you worried about? Then finally, verse 15, may the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. There he's saying, Saul, the Lord is going to judge us and I'm not worried at all. And you have this chance to turn around. Will you take it? David is trying to wake Saul up. He's not just restraining from doing harm. He's actively pursuing, pursuing his, his good. In the words of the, of the New Testament, he is heaping burning coals on his head. Man, it's hard for me to read this story and not think about Paul's words in Romans 12, 17 through 21. It's hard for me to believe that Paul didn't have this incident in his mind when he was writing these words on how Christians should act in the world. I'm just going to read them to you. 
And tell me that this doesn't embody what we're seeing here from David. Romans 12, 17-21 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Isn't that what we're seeing in this text? David heaping the burning coals of kindness on Saul's head. I love that image. The the burning coals image. In that day, in, in battle, when an enemy was attacking a castle or some kind of fortification, the defenders of that fortification would often pour hot coals on people's head to ward off their attack. And the idea is simple. You can't shoot arrows or use your sword if your face is on fire. That's military strategy 101. And so it was a move to virtually subdue and neutralize an attack. And what Paul is saying is let kindness be the thing that neutralizes the attack. Let your assertive display of mercy and generosity and restraint be your defense. Let it be the thing that disarms your enemies. And here's the thing. It almost works. David shows and extends this mercy and generosity to Saul, and we almost see Saul change. It's enough to make you cry. There's this moment of clarity. Verse 16. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice? My son David. And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, where I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home. But David and his men went to the stronghold. That's pretty powerful stuff. He almost wakes up. David calls him my father and he returns with, Is that you, my son? 
And he weeps. And he says, what am I doing? And he identifies David as being righteous, having repaid him with good when he had only paid evil. And he's saying, David, you have the character to be king. Surely you will be king. Will you be kind to me in the day when you rise to the throne? It's a powerful moment. The big question as it relates to Saul is, is this a true moment of repentance? You're going to have to wait for next week to find out. For now, we just reflect on the fact that David was tested. And he could have come out of that cave looking like Saul 2.0. But he comes out of that cave looking a heck of a lot like Jesus. Risking his life for the sake of his enemy. Extending mercy and grace. He looks like Jesus in other ways too. Jesus was sent into the wilderness. And he was tested in a very similar way by Satan. Satan said to Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world are yours. Why not take them? Why go to the cross? Take a shortcut. Just bow down to me. And Jesus says, I'll take the road of the cross. The road of suffering. The road of love. The road through the wilderness. Through suffering. To glory. And here's the thing I want you to think about the first Sunday of Advent. That kind of test isn't there for, just there for biblical characters like David and Jesus. We are all tested in these ways. We have all been promised a kingdom, haven't we? A kingdom of peace and joy and love and belonging. And when those things aren't experienced in our life, we can be very tempted to take shortcuts to them. To take substitutes that will eventually fail us. Or when no one's looking, to take shortcuts that would be understandable, but maybe over time lead us on a trajectory that make us less than what God wants us to be. It's hard to wait for love. It's hard to wait for belonging. It's hard to wait on God's timing for good things. But we remember that waiting isn't just about the waiting. And it isn't just about what we get at the end of the wait. It's about who we become as we wait. And the kind of character that waiting produces. Where else does one learn humility? Mercy, patient endurance, perseverance, and hope. If not in the trials of waiting on the Lord, where else do you learn to put your trust in a good and loving God and not in your own desired outcome or your own plans? Waiting points us to God's goodness, to His justice. To his wisdom. His timing is always right. And his greatest concern isn't so much on the circumstances that we might experience and enjoy in this life, 
But his interest is in who we're becoming and preparing us for life eternal. His interest is using every tool at his disposal to rescue us from our impatient, graspy, hasty hearts in order to shape us into the likeness of his son. Waiting is one of the main ways that he does that. What are you waiting for that you wish you could get right now? What does it look like to wait rather than grasp? Let me pray for us. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the wisdom that we find in your scriptures and how um, you reach out to us in your word and you say, I, I get it, you're in the wilderness and you're waiting. And I have great promises for you. And I know that some of those things haven't come true. And I know you're going to be tempted to take before it's time. And I want you to know that I'm with you in the waiting. And that I'm forming something great in your heart and your spirit in the process. Would you trust me? Would you come to me? Would you choose me? I'm with you, dear one. Believe it. May your words, Lord, resonate deeply in our hearts. We give you thanks and praise this first Sunday of Advent. We pray these things in your name. Amen.